Morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a blessing to be with you today and to share God's Word. With what I've heard recently, it seems that we're probably going to be doing this for a little while. Um, but the Lord knows and praise Him, He will help. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1, if you want to turn there. And let's pray as we open the Word together. Father, thank you for your word that you've given us your truth and your wisdom for all time. And I pray that you would fill our hearts with great uh, affection for you, faith to believe what you've said, that you would challenge us, that we'd be changed as we choose to follow and walk in your ways. And I pray, Lord, you'd fill us with your spirit so that we can understand the things that you say and lay it to heart. We're grateful, Lord, that you speak to us and that you're mindful of us and you don't forget us. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking this week of all the measures we take to prevent against theft. Like, how different would life be if theft wasn't a thing? If we didn't have to worry about or concern ourselves with people taking things that aren't theirs. And you think, well, doors and locks. Doors uh, and window locks and uh, security screens, alarms. Have all these uh, things around our houses to prevent theft. You have, you have your valuables in a safe, or you'll put them in a safety deposit box in a bank. Your cars, they have the transponder key. You have to have that key with that car so that it won't be stolen. Um, online, we use passwords and uh, security questions to prevent identity theft because we don't want people having unauthorized access to our accounts. And I mean, the world would be very different if we didn't have to concern ourselves with thieves and we can perhaps rest easy if there's been a cat burglar on the loose that's now behind, behind bars. Um, but, you know, there's thieves that we don't always recognize that can rob us of the things God has given us. And there's no amount of locks or security that can stop those thieves. Thieves of selfishness, worry, greed, envy. And in a way, we rob ourselves if we give place to these uh, thieves in our lives because they replace thanksgiving and gratefulness and contentment and joy and the peace that God gives us with all he's provided. There are gifts God's given us that's more precious than gold, more precious than a car or a home. He's given us himself and the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, we're in Luke chapter 12, and in the previous chapter, Jesus, he was invited by Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers to have a meal. And they were hospitable, but really underneath the veneer of smiles at the onset, they wanted to destroy him. They wanted to find fault with him. They claimed to honor God, but their hearts were far from him. And Jesus compared them to people who would polish the outside of the cup, but leave the inside filthy, neglecting the inner part of their lives. They, they put great emphasis on keeping the law and doing the, the commands of Moses, but they passed over the justice and love of God. They tithed of their herbs, uh, they washed their hands, but they were guilty of sin and hypocrisy before God because the attitudes of their hearts and the motives did not match their words. And after declaring woe on the Pharisees, we reach the point where Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to instruct them, to warn them against hypocrisy. And the things that he says, they're so relevant for us today. So let's jump in in Luke 12, starting in verse 1. 
In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus bid his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which he identifies as hypocrisy. A little yeast, it can permeate the whole lump of dough. And hypocrisy unchecked in the Pharisees, it caused them to swell up with pride. And it corrupted their worship and all their good works before God and made them sinful. There's nothing wrong with leaven. It would be poor exegesis to make it a type of sin. Hypocrisy is the problem here because it's corrupting from the inside out. I have a sourdough starter at home that I've kept for several years, and when the yeast is going well, when it's well-fed, bacteria has, it can't even get a foothold in that sourdough. The Pharisees, they look like pious, God-fearing men, but they sought to destroy the Savior that God sent them. In vain, they worshiped God because they were elaborate frauds. They sought the praise of men rather than really praising and offering themselves to God. In warm conditions, it doesn't take long for dough to rise. In hypocrisy, it happens on the inside. That's where the problem is. It's a problem of the heart, and it begins to manifest itself on the outside. You know, that, that dough begins to swell. And, and in that warm spot, you say, wow, the dough is rising fast. I need to move it to a cooler area. And we see this happening, that inner hypocrisy begins to manifest itself on the outside. The, the Pharisees confided and schemed against Jesus secretly, but they ended up crucifying him or, or sending him to be crucified publicly. Jesus told his disciples that the person they were in private was the best indication of who they really were. And... The parts of our lives that we desire or they desire to keep secret would be manifested to everyone. It's like the lust of the eyes and fantasy begins to be acted out with the body. A departure from belief and the divine inspiration of God's word, it leads to sin and uh, heretical teaching and sinful practices. The serpent deceived Eve, but then Eve uh, encouraged Adam to sin. So it doesn't stay with you. That's one of the, the I guess, insidious aspects of sin. It doesn't stay with you. It, it will manifest itself um, openly. Bacteria, you can keep it in the Petri dish, in a lab, but hypocrisy doesn't stay in your heart. It begins to be lived out in your lives. And God sees it and it corrupts us and it's to be warned. He warns his disciples against it. Moving on to Luke 12, 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees held a great deal of power. They could endanger business and family connections. To profess Jesus Christ as Messiah was a potentially 
um, well, high society suicide, it, it grouped you in with people they viewed to be as heretics or people who were uh, following Jesus, whom they claimed was a blasphemer and demon-possessed. I mean, that's how extreme their views were of Jesus. They weren't neutral towards him. Now, what happened to Jesus with being um, crucified, that was a stark warning of what happened to people who publicly opposed the Pharisees. They bribed Judas to betray Jesus so they could arrest and murder him under the guise of legally executing a blasphemer. Jesus told his followers, whom he calls friends here, not to be afraid of those who can kill the body. And that's exactly what people were afraid of. They didn't want to die. They didn't want to, uh, their, to be dead to their family and cut off from going to synagogue. Jesus says, rather, instead of fearing man, fear the one who, after he kills, can throw the soul into hell. And the word he uses there is Gehenna. It alluded to the Valley of Hinnom outside uh, Jerusalem that was a smoldering rubbish tip, historically a place where um, child sacrifice to the idol Moloch was happening, and it was brutal. It was, I won't describe it to you in full detail, but basically children were killed there, and the cries of the, cries of the children, the, the burning, the smoldering, the death, the rubbish, it was a picture of, it was like a foretaste of hell to come. A sobering hint of the eternal future that a soul faces for rejecting Jesus Christ, being separated from God because of sin. The fear of God, it frees us from the fear of man and what man can do to us. When we trust and obey God, he's promised to give us eternal life uh, and he, Jesus talks about these five sparrows. He says, you can buy five sparrows for two copper coins. Those would be very small coins. Not one flitting sparrow eludes God's gaze. Not one would be forgotten. Now, I've seen a lot of sparrows in my life. I can't tell you how many. I don't know how many sparrows are in the world today. I've never even seen a sparrow's nest, to be honest with you. Um, but God says, all the hairs on your head have been numbered. Now, I don't know anyone who would care how, exactly how many hairs they have on their head or would go through the trouble to know that. So that tells me that God knows everything about me, and he knows things about me that I don't even care to know about myself. And he says, do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And the question is, do we believe that? Do you believe that, believer? that God has such care and concern for you. David wrote this in Psalm 139, 17 and 18. He says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Sydney is home, I read, to 365 varieties of native birds. It's estimated that there's hundreds of billions of birds in the world currently. The thoughts of God toward one of us is more than all the birds and all the grains of sand combined. So don't let the fact you're feeling forgotten rob you of the fact that God values you and remembers you right now. It's like God is thinking about you because he loves you, because he is good. We're undeserving of that kind of attention and favor. 
But praise the Lord, he gives it to us by his grace. Luke 12, verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. To confess, it's to acknowledge, to own, to declare to be true rather than deny. Jesus promised to confess before the angels, so in heaven, before all things, everyone who confesses him as Lord before men. So he's like, if you confess me before men, I will confess before the angels in heaven. Jesus says that um, words spoken against him will be forgiven, but those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And this is what's sometimes called the unpardonable sin. Uh, And it's been the source of confusion and concern for many. On face value, it may seem like a contradiction. Jesus just said all manner of sin will be forgiven, but then says those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So how do we uh, reconcile this? There's a parallel passage in Mark 3, verse 28 through 30, that gives us greater insight into what this particular sin is and how it affects and impacts our relationship with God. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whoever blasphemies, whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because they said... He has an unclean spirit. There were people who believed when Jesus cast out a demon that he had done so by the power of Satan. So if you, because they believed that Jesus was operating through satanic power, these who feared God, uh, these, I guess, hypocrites who feared God, they would never go to Jesus for forgiveness. They would never go to him for salvation because they believed him to be a devil. So because they attributed the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life to Satan, they could never have forgiveness because it only comes through Jesus Christ. To blaspheme, it's to vilify. So if you're making the Holy Spirit a devil, then you're not going to have a revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God because the Holy Spirit's been given by God to convict us of sin, of righteousness and judgment, to teach us everything that Jesus has taught, to remind us of what he has said. So if you vilify the Holy Spirit and you will not receive the Holy Spirit, you cannot be saved. You cannot be forgiven. You refuse the hope of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Here's a, a helpful quote on the subject. It says, In light of the context, this refers to an attitude, not an isolated act or utterance, of defiant hostility toward God that rejects his saving power toward man, expressed in the Spirit-empowered person and work of Jesus. It is one's preference for darkness, even though he has been exposed to light. Such a persistent attitude of willful unbelief can harden into a condition in which repentance and forgiveness, both mediated by God's Spirit, become impossible. That's the Bible knowledge commentary. I thought that that says it very well. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin without exception. But if you refuse or vilify the Holy Spirit, you cannot 
be born again. You cannot be forgiven, and you're cut off from the Savior. And the one who denies Jesus, remember Peter denied Jesus, but he repented and was restored. Those who deny Christ, you are in danger of condemnation. Having believed the testimony of the Spirit then, and trusting in Jesus, in verse 11, he promises the Holy Spirit would teach them in the very hour what they should say. Christians like the Savior before them would be hauled and are still being hauled before rulers and magistrates and councils to give an answer for their conduct or for the hope that is in them. And I love this. He's saying you don't need to obsess about arguments. You don't need to think about what you need to say or how you should say it. There's, you don't need to think about what points you should make or worry what questions are going to be asked. This sounds like you're prepping for a test, right? You feel like, okay, I'm on trial. But no, God can speak for himself. And since the Holy Spirit is within you, he will teach you in that very hour what you should say when you are being put on the spot for your faith. In real time, the God who is within us will teach us what to say. It's like we can have an answer from the mouth of God with the wisdom of God in all situations through faith in Christ. So we don't have to be overwhelmed by the knowledge of our hearers or the power of governors who could decide if they live or died. You see the boldness in the disciples when they were brought before the Sanhedrin or when Paul stood before Festus and some of the uh, Roman rulers and how they did not hold back at all. They spoke boldly. Our ability and their ability to stand bravely in the face of opposition, it's not our words, it's not our power of presentation, but in the almighty God who lives in us and helps us. Now, this being said, it's not a, I guess, it doesn't, it's still, we still ought to study to show ourselves approved. It doesn't mean that we should be lackadaisical or casual about our knowledge of the word. Uh, we need to be feeding on the word of God. It says, Jesus said in John 14, 25 and 26, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Holy Spirit, he teaches. He reminds us of God's word. He reveals Jesus Christ to us and through us so that others will also believe. And we need to be... There's that aspect of being exposed to the truth of the Scripture so we can be reminded of the Scripture. So, um, praise the Lord, He does speak to us and through us. Moving on to Luke 12, starting in verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Jesus has been teaching, and he's, it sounds to me much like an interruption. They weren't talking about inheritances or family squabbles, but this guy pipes up, and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And there's something in me that cringes a little bit with this man Telling Jesus, who's God in the flesh, what to do. And I cringe because I realize at times I have done the same. Jesus, 
the judge of all the earth, the king of kings. He's not obligated to take a side, not even to hear that man's side of the story or to intervene. Now, maybe this man had a legitimate gripe. Maybe there was part of the inheritance that was rightfully his that he wasn't receiving. We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus followed up this rebuke with a warning against covetousness. So it's like he saw something in the heart of the man that was now on display for everyone. He says, guys, be careful about covetousness. The last of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not covet. That, to covet. Now, this is going to perhaps shock you a little bit. It means to delight in or to desire something that is not yours. Paul said that he would have not have imagined coveting was a sin, except it said so in the law. We read that in Romans 7, 7. Covetousness, it's a close relative of greed, envy, discontent. The man, he looked upon the inheritance, he wanted some of it for himself, and so he told Jesus to have his brother divide it. The insidious thing about covetousness is it shows we're unhappy with what God has already given. We're not satisfied with that. And you know, even when we obtain our desire, it doesn't mean we'll be satisfied. I like what Trapp wrote on the subject. He said, covetous men, by gaping after more, lose the pleasure of that which they possess. As a dog at his master's table swallows the whole meat he casts him without any pleasure, gaping still for the next morsel. And I think we've all known dogs like this, right? You, you give them some, a little scrap, and they just wolf it down quickly, and they're just like intent for the next bit. They didn't like savor and go, oh, that was good. That, that was delectable. I, I'm satisfied now. They're like, where's more? And we can be like that. Solomon said that greed, it takes away the life of those who own it. Longing for what's not ours, it leads to dissatisfaction with what God's already given. And then Jesus just has this zinger here. One's own life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. We don't always agree with that, do we? We think if we had better things or more things, our lives would be better. But the more we have, the more there is to manage, to maintain, and to lose. I'm reminded of Elisha's servant Gehazi after God healed Naaman the Syrian of his leprosy. Elisha, after uh, God healed him, he refused to take any gifts from Naaman the Syrian, who came loaded down with gifts. He urging him to take the gifts. He's like, no, no, I'm not going to take anything from you. But Gehazi, his servant, he says, I'm going to run after him and take something off him. And he makes up this false story about two prophets coming and Elisha. So he's asking on behalf of Elisha. He's lying to him and says, oh, if we could have a bit, some clothes and a little bit of silver, that would be really helpful. And uh, Naaman, he's happy to give. He, he's like, hey, you want one talent of silver? Take a second. And uh, when Gehazi returned to Elisha after hiding the stuff in his house, Elisha says, where did you go? And Gehazi said, nowhere. And this is what happened in 2 Kings 5, 26 and 27. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. 
Gehazi, as they're carrying that silver back to his house, it's more silver than he had probably ever seen in his life, he's thinking about all the things that he could get with this silver, all the, all the goods he could acquire. He's ta- thinking about servants and oxen and groves and properties, and, and it ended up ruining him. It shows that the things of this world, it can do nothing for our souls. It doesn't give us health. And we might think that more or better stuff, it will improve our lives, but it's a mirage. It just fades. And the meaning and purpose of life is not found in having more stuff, but it's in knowing God and being known by Him. What a contrast between Gehazi and Elisha. When Elijah departed, And he says, what shall I do for you? He didn't ask for silver. He didn't ask for a change of clothing. He said, let a double portion of your spirit, the spirit of the living God, be upon me. He desired the true riches, not just stuff. And may we also have that in our hearts to desire and pursue the Lord. Luke 12, 16. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus follows this warning about covetousness with this parable about a rich man who has a bumper crop. Poor people are thinking like, oh, what do we do? We don't have food for dinner. Well, this guy's thinking, what do I do? I've got too much stuff. I can't even, I don't even have room to store all the goods that I have received. This abundant crop. And he says, what should I do? What's the solution? All right, pull down my barns, build bigger barns, take my ease, eat drink, and be merry. And he's like, soul, you deserve this. Uh, you're set for life. And God's like, you fool. You see his focus here. It's very much on himself. It's like, I'm going to do this. I have no room to store my crops. There's all those personal pronouns scattered in there. He's not thinking about his servants, his neighbors, his family, the poor, even God. God's not in his thoughts. David said this in Psalm 10:4, right after saying that God abhors the covetous. It says, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. So with wealth, he's not thinking about how can I use this for the Lord? How can I bring glory to him? Um, thank the Lord for what he's given. It, God's not in his thoughts at all. It's all, all about what he's going to do and how he's set up really well. This man that God calls a fool, wouldn't you say that we would see him as an example of success to follow? Like, this is what we want. We welcome the dilemma that he had of having more stuff than he had room for. You hear that the lottery ruins people's lives, and we go, well, I'm willing to take the risk, right? I I don't mind. I'm not going to have the problems they're having. Yeah, they're having problems, but that wouldn't be me. He imagined these, this food would sustain him for years, but it failed him when God required his soul. 
The covetous or greedy person, they don't have to have a lot of possessions. But their end, it will be the same as this foolish rich man. And he says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Coveting, it's a sin. It leads to uh, death, like all sin. It feeds on selfish desire, but the wise, it says, are rich toward God. So the question is, how can we be rich toward God? Well, one is by walking by faith in Him. We see this in James 2, verse 5. It says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Isn't that cool? Rich in faith. We can be rich in faith and we trust God with what He's given us, thanking Him for all He's provided. A person who trusts God to supply their needs will be generous even when they have little by comparison to others. Another way to be rich toward God is by good works to honor Him. Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. He wrote, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Faith in God's love, His provision that He hasn't forgotten about us, that He will remember us and our needs, it leads us to considering the needs of others. And let's not imagine that riches just translate to money or to gold or some sort of wealth that has a net worth component to it, but God's given us so many things beyond price that we are to freely share with others, like forgiveness, grace, mercy, compassion, love. God's given us the Holy Spirit beyond measure, filling us with the presence of God who leads us to do His will. So by faith in God, because we can't, you can't do good works without our good God empowering us to do so, we can be joyful and content. That is a good work. It is good for us to be joyful and content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, even out of work, poor health, struggling uh, with mental health or, or issues, to still have confidence in God, that is a good work. Happy with all what God has given instead of being discontent and coveting what others have or being greedy to gain more ourselves. Those are the true enduring riches of the kingdom of God. Those gifts beyond price, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you know, God even allows the stuff that we have, the money we may earn, things that will someday perish, we can use those for eternal glory to build ourselves a good foundation, building upon the foundation of faith in Christ. And because I trust Christ, I am going to be giving I'm going to be serving. I'm going to be helping and loving others. The good things that God gives us, that he gives us to richly enjoy, it can be a test to see if we'll be thankful for it or if we'll be discontent, if we're going to be greedy for more or uh, full of thanksgiving and gratefulness for all God's done. Luke 12, verse 22, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. 
which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? In light of the God who's given us life now and provides eternal life for all who trust in Jesus, says, do not worry about your life. This command, I see it right on par with do not murder, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. He says, do not worry. We aren't to be anxious about our lives. Jesus gives examples. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about your body. Don't worry about what you will put on. Life is more than food, and life is more than your clothing size or your style. And thoughts about these things and many other things fill our minds, don't they? And the life that God's given us, it's more than just eating and drinking and clothing. Now, you might look at your body and covet some clear skin or bigger muscles or a a smaller waistline and become discontent with how you look or how you feel. God requires souls in the prime of life every day. And it struck me this week that one day, that's going to be my name on that obituary. My name is going to be written there. And my body will be laid to rest. And this doesn't speak for me, but what good are your ripped abs going to do for you then? Or your flawless skin or that wardrobe that in those shoes and all the things that you have acquired those lovely things that you take pleasure in, what good will they do you then when your soul is required from you and you must give an answer for your life? Jesus used birds as an example. They do not sow, they do not reap, they don't have storehouses, but God feeds them day by day. And he says, again, people are more valuable than birds. Then he asks, which of you by worrying can add a cubit to your stature? And a a cubit was measured from the elbow to the fingertips uh, I, I looked it up online, 457 millimeters. It's pretty specific. Um, can you grow that much because you're concerned about how short you might be? No one. And I love the fact that being short didn't hinder Zac- Zacchaeus from coming to Jesus because Jesus came to him and God provided a tree and gave Zacchaeus the skill to climb the tree so that he could see Jesus and they could have that interaction. So being short, being tall, it doesn't make you any less valuable or viable for service for God. And if we can't make ourselves taller through our anxiety, why justify our anxiety? Birds don't worry. They're fed by God. They do have to leave the nest to gather it up. So this isn't a a promise to bless slothfulness. Continuing in Luke 1227, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. To people who worried if the rains would come, if the crops would grow, Jesus used the example of flowers. 
Flowers grow without effort. They are clothed with vibrant colors without weaving or dye. And he says, if God clothes that green grass today, which flourishes, it flowers, it, little seeds grow on it, and it's thrown into the oven tomorrow, how much more will he clothe those who he's adopted as his own children now and who he has a place for forever? He provides clothes for today. He gives us a robe of righteousness that will adorn us forever through faith in Jesus. If you've ever paid to lay turf in your yard, you don't see that turf as disposable, right? Ah, we'll just buy it again in a month. Like, don't bother watering it. Don't fertilize it. Don't put a little, you know, boundary around it so people aren't treading on it. No, you, you will take care of it. If you're going to pay money for it, you're going to make sure it's weeded. You're going to protect it. You're going to water it. And God loves us way more than grass. Some people really love their turf. God loves you more than that. And he knows what you need even before you think to ask him. He says, don't seek food or drink or have an anxious mind. Think about the ways that God provided for his people. Like God caused water to spring from a rock. He caused manna to appear daily for his children in the wilderness. He sent birds to feed Elijah with meat and bread. And in my life, he sent two jolly ladies into our living room with arms full of groceries when there was no food in the house. And they said, these are groceries from Jesus. When my mother prayed that afternoon, there was food delivered by total strangers to our house. So God knows what you need. He's able to supply it in his good time. So do not have an anxious mind. And so do you have an anxious mind today? The Greek word that's used here, it's meteor. The idea is it's hanging in suspense. You don't know whether it's going to hit the ground and cause an explosion or, um, or just continue flying along through the heavens. What are you anxious about? What has you in suspense? What has you holding your breath? Wouldn't it be better to use our breath to praise the Lord, to, to thank Him, and to make our requests known to Him? Falling meteors, they blaze quickly in the sky. You've seen maybe a video, you know, a bright, shining light, but they, they show up quick and they also disappear quickly. And many of the things that we worry about are like meteors. The, the, the meteor falls and there's a meteoric rise of a new worry or a new care, right? And it's like never-ending. You might be in the middle of a meteor shower of anxiousness at the moment. But when we're at the mercy of worry and anxiety, we rob ourselves of the peace and rest given us by Jesus Christ. We can't blame, rightly, our worrying on our circumstances because God is not troubled by what troubles you and what troubles me. When Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, he provides power through the Holy Spirit to to have faith in him in the midst of the storm, knowing that he will bring calm, that our peace is found in him. The man who wanted to, Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him, he could have had an inheritance with Jesus Christ through a covenant that would be sealed with the blood of the Son of God. And that's the offer that's been given to us. So instead of worrying or seeking the things of the world to satisfy us, Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. In other words, 
in God, all of our needs for life now and for eternity to come are met. We're deserving of hell, but He gives us life. He gives us forgiveness, and He provides bountifully for those who trust Him. Unbelief and worry, it strips us of the abundant life that God offers His people, that He has given us. Paul urged in 1 Timothy 4.8 to exercise unto godliness. He says, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. All the money, all the success, all the food and drink of this world, it's nothing but dead weight dragging us down when we're not rich towards God. That's the key, is that let's be rich toward God in thanksgiving, in praising Him, in trusting Him. If we're God's children and we're giving a place to worry, that's hypocrisy that we should repent of. It's time to throw those stealthy thieves of worry and doubt and envy and greed out of our lives and instead seek the Lord and praise Him because He's good and He loves us. God always delivers on His promises without fail. He has sealed that covenant with the blood of Jesus. So let's praise and thank Him and trust Him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are good, that we can trust you, that your word is true and sure. And even the young lions suffer lack and hunger, but those who wait upon you and trust you will lack no good thing. And thank you, Lord, for testing us with the things we have and the things that you have withheld for us for your good purposes so that we might learn to trust you and be content in all seasons and situations of life. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling, who are having difficulties, who have doubts and anxieties. Lord, I pray that those, um, those thieves would be cast out so that you might enter in in your fullness as we repent, as we reaffirm our trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would uphold, you would sanctify, you would help, and you would teach us your ways. Give us that heart of contentment that praises you all our days in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.